Okay, I'd like to welcome everybody who is watching and following along with this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call interview series. Uh, I am Will Driscoll, the Executive Director of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. And as you can see, we are still doing our part to social distance and hopefully move past the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, some of the conversations we've had during this pandemic have really focused on the stoppage in sports and how they can begin to get back uh, to physical play in a safe and healthy manner. Today, we're gonna kind of shift direction and talk about the mental aspect of how the pandemic is affecting athletes, coaches, and the preparation that goes along with that. Uh, we're thrilled to be joined today by one of the world's preeminent sports psychologists, Dr. Bob Rotella. Dr. Rotella served as sports psychology professor for 21 years at the University of Virginia, where he was also the director of sports psychology. In addition to that, he works with numerous top-level athletes, including LeBron James and Rory McIlroy, as well as Fortune 500 companies to improve mental preparation and performance. Uh, he has also authored numerous books on the subject matter as well. Uh, so Dr. Rotella, after that long introduction, thank you for taking the time out of what I'm sure is a busy schedule to join us today. Uh, great to be with you, Will. Hopefully you're staying cool because it, it got to 104 degrees down here at Virginia Beach today. <laughs> it's, it's warm, for sure. <laughs> Well, it, this is for everybody who's out there. If you do get the chance after after this interview, of course, feel free to Google Dr. Rotella because there's a lot of videos and seminars that you can find where Dr. Rotella is talking about his approach and some of the advice that he gives. And some of it could really apply to a lot of what you do in your daily life. So uh, again, Dr. Rotella, thank you. And, and obviously, if you have questions, feel free to get them up and we'll try to get them on the stream uh, here for those people watching. But I could go through all of your accolades and it might take the full 20, 25 minutes that we have here. So instead of me doing that, why don't you kind of give us a little bit of your background, Dr. Rotella, and tell us why sports psychology was the path you chose and how the, the, the discipline has shifted or maybe evolved over the last couple of decades. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's evolved, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty much doing the same thing I was doing 40 years ago. Um, I think it's become more popular. I think more people are aware of it. I think the media has gotten more comfortable talking about it. Um, I, I was fortunate. I had a cousin named Sal Soma, who was a great football coach at Neudorf High School in Staten Island, New York. And he was best friends with Vince Lombardi. And by the time I was 10 years old, every time he'd come to visit, all he'd talk about is him and this Lombardi guy. And they always talked about attitude and, you know, they talk about gamers and practice players and, you know, mental preparation and the mindset you wanted people in. And then in high school, I went to Catholic high schools in Vermont and I basically was the quarterback in football and the point guard in basketball and a pitcher in baseball. And so you got to spend a lot of time in the coaching offices and they were always talking about players' heads and minds and how to get them in the right place to play and, you know, that probably played as big a role as any. And then I pretty much modeled what I do after Lombardi always had the team over to his house for cookouts on Saturdays. And Thomas Jefferson, when he came to Virginia, built the lawn with the idea that he wanted the professors to live up upstairs above the students on the lawn because he thought the most important learning took place outside the classroom. So I kind of took their ideas and I started bringing people to my house for two days at a time and teaching them everything I could teach them about uh, greatness and success and, and attitude. You know, you kind of alluded to it. The mental aspect is something that we hear about a lot, but historically it hasn't really been talked about at length. Uh, that's, that is changing these days. 
But when you hear the term mentally tough, because it's something that all sports fans or anybody who's ever dealt in sports has heard, what does that mean to you, if anything? And how do you approach a top-level athlete or even just a, an athlete that is reaching out to you for help? Well, you know, one of my golf books, you know, was called The Unstoppable Golfer. And to me, what it means is you're unstoppable if you're unflappable. Now, whether you want to call it mental toughness, mental strength, resilient, uh, patient, um, some people might call it gritty. Uh, the bottom line is you have to be able to prepare so that once the game starts, nothing could possibly bother you or upset you. You know, in my world, if someone gets really bothered, or upset or frustrated or even angry. Um, it's not that I have anything against those things. It's just that to me, it means you've lost your focus. You know, you, your focus going into the game was to get your head in a particularly great place and stay there and not let anything that happened during the game change it. And I think in weaker players, they let every little thing bother them or affect them. And I think guys were mentally tough you know, are just basically unbothered by anything that could possibly happen during the game. And it's a lot like what we're dealing with with this virus. Um, I mean, the challenge, you know, I'll, I'll back up and say that the first challenge is all these college athletes, you know, and pro athletes, can you work out on your own when you don't have a strength coach in the room with you and all of your teammates in the room with you, pushing you and prodding you to work hard? We're going to find out a lot about who has self-discipline versus who's only disciplined if someone else is there telling them what to do every minute of the day. The second thing that's come up a lot is you better prepare to have a season. Like it sounds like the ACC is going to make a decision the end of this month on whether they're going to play football and is it going to be just in a conference or what. But the real challenge is can you prepare as if you know you're going to have a regular season so that if they decide you're playing, you're ready. The mistake you don't want to make is to get negative and pessimistic and decide, well, no sense working out or doing my mental preparation because no matter, we're not going to have a season anyways because, you know, some people are really pessimistic are going to think they always get a bad break and this should never happen. And I tell people, heck, when I was in college, um, they canceled our spring season halfway through the year because of the Kent State shootings, um, you know, which is back in the early 70s. So it's happened before, but if you listen to the world out there, you'd think it's never happened before. But crazy stuff happens, and you better be able to deal with it. I mean, that's a lot of what it's about. And to a lot of athletes, they are doing a lot of mental preparation at home, a lot of visualizing, and they're trying to anticipate every situation they could possibly ever face and then be prepared for it. And you'd rather be overprepared than underprepared. And, you, you know, that's the, the best teams do that all the time. You, you kind of actually answered my next question and just kind of talking about unforeseen circumstances, players, coaches, really everybody in sports is a creature of habit. And, and you mentioned it's, it's preparing, almost preparing for something that you can't prepare for. What percentage of players and coaches do you think have the mental capacity? Not, I don't want to say that because that's kind of discrediting them, but are able are going to be able to focus and get through this as if you know the season is just a normal season well first of all I, I you know we're preparing for the unexpected that's different from preparing for stuff you can't prepare for i think you can prepare for the unexpected um i think everybody every coach honestly has the ability 
to be prepared and deal with this effectively. My guess is there'll be some percentage of players that won't. I think most coaches are going to be prepared just because it's the nature of their business is to prepare people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think most people are going to get through it, but you know, I think what a lot of at the pro level, you're dealing with people with wives and children. And then the issue becomes, it's not only a risk for my own body, but now I'm taking a risk that might affect my wife or my husband, if it's a female athlete or your children. And th that's when it becomes much more difficult to, to make a decision on. And, you know, I see where the NFL is thinking about putting these shields in front on their helmets. And I heard an emergency room guy the other day talking about that uh, a regular cloth face mask is better than the shields because, you know, all kinds of germs and air can get underneath the shields. So, I mean, I think football and basketball, it's going to be a tough decision because, you know, you're making contact with each other. Baseball, there's some contact, but not as much. Um, and I think some of it is getting guys prepared and gals prepared to play with nobody in the stands. And I, I think most players will adapt to that pretty quickly. I mean, I always say, you know, to all my athletes, when you were a kid and you were 10 years old, you didn't have fans and you were just as competitive when you played in the backyard against your best friends. And, you know, I, I think most people will get past that pretty good. I just think it's, you have to be able to trust that anybody who's positive is not going to step on the field. I mean, I mean, that's where it gets interesting. Like if you listen to any of the emergency room doctors talking about it, that, you know, and you talk about the mask, they say, well, the mask is really not for the person wearing the mask. It's to protect the other people. And so you have to have a lot of trust in other people doing the right thing and that the testing's accurate. Um, so, I mean, it's, it, you've got all kinds of unexpected stuff and all kinds of doubt, but you're gonna have to really trust your teammates. You're gonna have to trust your coaches. And they're all going to have to trust the organization. And it's tricky because, I mean, just look at the ACC. We're talking probably 25 to 30 million for TV rights for each team, each university. And so how do you totally separate economics from safety? And which is more important? Do you, can you weigh them both equally? I mean, all of that's going to play a role. It's the same with the universities and high schools going back to school. At some point, if no one goes to school, well, it's going to put a big burden on a lot of schools. I know a lot of universities that had to pay back to students 45 to $50 million last spring in tuition and room and board reimbursements. Well, I mean, there aren't a lot of schools that can do that a whole lot and survive. So, I mean, there's a lot of financial decisions that come into play here. But, I mean, it's not only the football or basketball teams. It's what's it going to do to all the other sports at universities. We've seen Stanford drop, what, 10 or 11 sports. I think Brown University dropped like eight or 10. I think University of Connecticut is trying to drop a whole bunch. And if we don't play sports, I think we're going to see a lot more of it. We've seen it here locally with Old Dominion dropping the wrestling program. Now, the, the report has come out that said that was something that was in the works. But still, looking at the timing, uh, it, it probably would have happened either way. I was talking to a, a gentleman who was on the board at Stanford a few weeks ago, and he said some of it is the current situation. Some of it is some of these athletic directors and schools want to get rid of these programs, and this is just the easiest time to do it and not get criticized as much for it. 
And some of yeah. it is they're probably hoping that alumni in wrestling at Old Dominion will come up with the money and say, we'll raise the money and endow it. I mean, so that's the other possibility. Yeah, I've, I've seen that with my alma mater, Temple, a few years ago. They, they dropped seven programs, including crew, but then the crew alumni came through and built a brand new, uh, a brand new boathouse, and now the men's and women's crew is still there. Yep. But, I, but I, I wanted to go back to one thing you mentioned, talking about you know, the lack of spectators in all of these, what they're called spectator sports. And I heard you on Golick and Wingo on ESPN Radio a few weeks back, and you mentioned that in conversation with Barry Sanders, Barry Sanders always played as if he was still playing flag football. Talk about that approach and how that can relate to a lot of the players these days in, in helping get through this, this lack of crowd noise and, and focusing on the task at hand. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I worked some with the Philadelphia Eagles here. They won the Super Bowl. And I told the team that story. And I told them, I think in my mind, that's the best image I've ever heard for playing a skill position in football. And all the skill guys wanted to really talk about it a lot. And it was amazing the different mindsets that those guys used. And I think I mentioned on Golic that some of them talked about pretending they were inside a computer playing Madden football. Uh, someone else said, believe it or not, he wanted to become idiot man. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, my pregame music, which I only listened to in pregame, was to totally shut off my brain because I wanted to become so unconscious that personally I referred it to I wanted to become idiot man, which meant like I had no brain. And some guys described it as taking their conscious brain and leaving it in the locker room so they could just look with their eyes and intuitively and instinctively react to whatever their eyes saw, which is really an ideal place to be for a skilled position. Uh, quick question from somebody who's actually following along from Jonathan. Uh, some of the sports have gone into the bubble. Some of them are not going into the bubble like Major League Baseball. What would you say to NBA and NHL players to prepare them for the restrictions of the bubbles they are in? Stay in the bubble. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think everybody you talk to the NBA, that's the biggest concern. These guys tend to really like their nightlife. I mean, they play late and sleep late. And they tend to go out after games, a lot of them. And to get those guys to really stay in isolation and stay in the bubble you know, is going to be the biggest challenge. If everyone will stay in the bubble, and as you can see already, if you report someone who's breaking the bubble, you know, they're trying to come up with bad words to describe you, you know? And so, I mean, there's a lot of peer pressure to not tell on other people, and yet you're putting other people's lives in danger. But if they can get everyone to stay in the bubble and really wear masks when they should be wearing masks and you know, it'll make a big difference. Uh, but, you know, that's the challenge. I think at universities, everyone's talking about, I mean, all the college athletes I've talked to said, well, everyone's worrying about six feet apart in the classroom. They're more concerned about the parties that are going to happen at night than they are what's going on in the classroom. They say that's going to be a much bigger danger. And it's going to be very hard to get college students, you know, to totally stay away from each other at night on weekends. I plead the fifth on that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talking about a sport that's obviously very near and dear to you and one that has now been back for a month and a half, and that's golf, yep. the PGA Tour. They've, yep. They're have they playing major tournaments, and they're actually about a month away from the first major of the season, but they just finished the Memorial. What have you seen from golf? And in some of your conversations with maybe some of your clients or just friends, 
like what have they seen that they've liked? What can be improved? And, and kind of just does, has golf set a, a precedent for other sports to follow? Well, I think they've sent a lot of precedent precedents. Um, they're doing really great testing. If someone tests positive or has been around someone that tests positive, the guys are dropping out and being retested. So they're being very cautious and careful. Um, like last two weeks playing at the same location, you know, was another step in that direction. But the difference is golf isn't a contact sport. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's a real easy sport to, to do the separation and keep everyone pretty darn safe. Um, so, I mean, it's helping a lot. Some of, the, some of the players are driving from tournament to tournament, even when it's a 10, 12-hour drive to stay out of airports. Um, I know I've had players come here to visit who've flown it commercially. And it's interesting. They're telling me that the air, you know, like Atlanta and Charlotte are pretty darn busy, but they're telling me to their amazement, everyone isn't wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, sometimes on flights and sometimes in the terminal. Uh, the other thing interesting for college athletes, um, you really need a credit card. Uh, like I know the Atlanta airport was someone that came through it the other day. You couldn't buy the food or a drink um, with cash. You can only do a credit card so that they're not handling cash. But some athletes said, geez, I didn't have a credit card and no one told me about it. But so it'd be a good idea to make sure you had a credit card if you're flying through an airport. We actually spoke with uh, one of our inductees, Jeff Burton, who's a former NASCAR driver. And he was talking yep. about NASCAR's approach to the, to the season and restarting. And he said that they were looking at tracks that were within driving distance of a big chunk of the drivers. So that's why they went to Charlotte, Darlington, uh, Martinsville, places like that, so that a lot of them could drive so they didn't have to get on those planes. And I'm sure that now that we're seeing small spikes in Virginia and bigger spikes elsewhere, I'm sure that that will continue. Um, I think one aspect, though, that keeps getting overlooked, and this may be happening in conversations that you're in, the impact that referees, umpires, and officials you know, these are, they're human beings. They have adrenaline just like all of us. And it's not uncommon to see them maybe get caught up in the moment. You know, the umpire who gives the extra oomph on the call, strike three, the block charge the other way. You know, what kind of mental preparation are they going through? And it's funny, I'll say this before your answer. Steven Adams from the Oklahoma City Thunder today actually said he predicts more technical fouls because the refs will be able to hear everything the players say. <laughs> That's a good line. I like that a lot. I'll tell you what's interesting, like I know at Virginia that's you know known for their defense. Um, it'll be interesting because normally the team is here all summer and they're getting plenty of coaching and you know you can learn a lot defensively. This week is their first week back on campus and they've been quarantined for like seven days. So I mean you're way behind in your preparation for defense. Um you know, it's, it's going to make it a heck of a bigger challenge for coaches, that's for sure. And for young players, it'll be, you know, like with Virginia's defense, it's going to be hard for incoming freshmen to pick up the defense as quickly as they have in the past because we've really lost two and a half, three months. And, and, and my, my understanding from Coach Bennett is there, one coach at a time is going to be able to work with one player at a time for an hour max a day. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be wearing masks, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's different. That's for sure. 
So this has obviously been uh, your life, sports psychology, but as we kind of alluded to, it, it's not something yep. that is on the tip of everybody's tongue right now. Now we've actually here locally, the last two years have partnered with organizations such as, Op such as Optima Health and Children's Hospital, the King's Daughters, to really look at what's being done from a mental health, mental well-being standpoint as it relates to sports across all levels. As you start to see governing bodies like the NCAA, Power Five conferences, and even professional leagues start to really allocate time, effort, and resource to the mental health of athletes, either top level or even the ones coming up, how much pride do you take in that a, a, a system like Virginia was kind of at the forefront of this, you know, 20, 30 years ago? Uh, I mean, I think I was fortunate. I, I, I coached lacrosse at the University of Connecticut when I was in grad school in basketball at the University High School. And then I coached, I was a defensive coach for the lacrosse team for two years at Virginia. So I, I played basketball and lacrosse in college. And between that and having coached, I think it, you know, it, it allowed me to know how to talk with coaches and athletes and be able to communicate with them. That probably opened the doors. And then Gene Corrigan was the athletic director and he was very receptive to it. And that I'm sure played a very big role in it. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, there's some luck around being in the right place at the right time. Um, but, I, you know, I basically have loved sports since I was in fifth grade. And it's been a big, big part of my life. And, you know, when you talk about mental health and athletes, I, I, I get more concerned about young kids and parents. I mean, I think if we can keep parents in perspective, we're in pretty good shape. It's a lot of the biggest problems come when parents just get overly excited about their talented young kid and try to just put so much pressure on the kid that problems start showing up. I think when, you know, it's interesting, I was talking about, you know, when I was growing up, my dad was a barber and we played basketball games on Tuesday and Friday nights and football games on Saturday afternoons. Well, when you're a barber, you worked on Saturdays and you didn't get paid and you worked late on Friday night. So, he occasionally saw a Tuesday night game if it was at home. But I mean, parents were much more into getting good grades in school and good grades in behavior. <laughs> it was like, if you don't go to school, you're not going to practice. So we always went to school. And, you know, my dad had a simple rule. He said, the school had its eligibility rules and I have my eligibility rules and they don't have anything in common with one another. <laughs> to him, the school's eligibility rules were a minimal standard. You know, like you could get a, if you got C minuses, you could play sports. And my dad was like, no, you're going to get B pluses and A's or you're not playing sports, you know? And, and I, I think if parents would keep that perspective, they'd find out if their kid loves sports. And believe me, you don't become a great athlete if you don't have an unbelievable passion for sport. Any parent who thinks they're going to make their kid love sport. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes when I talk to him, I said, well, if I asked you to date a girl or a guy that you didn't like at all and thought was unattractive and didn't appeal to you, and I told you, well, just keep dating her. You'll eventually learn to like her. You'd say, oh, God, that'd be impossible. Well, that's what it's like if you're trying to make your kid like something they don't like. I'm a parent. I have one. Uh, I have one six-year-old. He's almost seven, and he's tried baseball, basketball, soccer. He's in golf, swimming, everything. And I think he likes them all. But you know, I, we're trying. We're definitely not in the specialization crowd. You know, how much has the specialization 
in your opinion, kind of played a role in that mental health, mental well-being, and the issues that we see popping up? It well, it, a it's a great question. I, I would say most of the pro athletes, um, well, we'll just take golf as an example. Um, almost all of the guys and gals on tour have their children play multiple sports. They, they could almost care if their kid is great at eight. Uh, they really think there's some advantages of playing a wide variety of sports. And then maybe when you get to eighth grade or so, or seventh, eighth or ninth grade, you know, probably in order to make varsity teams nowadays, you almost have to specialize. But most athletes at the high level aren't that into having their kids specialize really early and forcing them to pick a sport. Their attitude is, well, how would a kid even know what he really likes if he hasn't tried them? And most of them will tell you they've played a wide variety of sports. I can't remember what year it was, but it was, it was in the 20, it was in the teens. And there was a survey done of all the invitees to the NFL Combine. And it was, it was about specialization. And I believe it was something around high 60s, low 70s answered that they played multiple sports in high school. And I think that that has to start carrying down to the, to the younger levels. And the parents need to understand that as well, that you have to be well-rounded. And the mental aspect, the physical aspect, all these sports kind of help uh, with each other in that well-rounded development. I'll get you out of here on this. Um, as I mentioned, there's a lot of great videos of Dr. Rotella on the internet, but one of my favorite quotes uh, I've heard from you is, if everyone else understands and appreciates you it, from a sports perspective, you're in big trouble talking about athletes. Kind of tell people what that means. Well, it means if you're trying to be great at something, most people aren't going to understand because most people are trying to fit in. They're trying to be, quote, normal. They're trying to be like everybody else. And there's tremendous peer pressure in the middle to be like everyone else. If you're going to try to be great, then you're going to be different from us. I think we lost you. Okay, well, it looks like we're having a little bit of video difficulty with Dr. Rotella. Yep, must be a bad connection. Uh, well, I do wanna thank Dr. Rotella for joining us today. Uh, it, it was a pleasure catching up with him and hopefully, uh, you know, you, you whoever was listening and watching, uh, learned something today. He's a, he's a wonderful resource. Uh, he's very knowledgeable, obviously. He's one of the renowned sports psychologists in the world. And we're just very thankful that he, uh, that he joined us today. This video, along with all of our previous videos, will be up on our Facebook page. Uh, they'll be available for viewing, as well as on our, uh, on our website, www.vasportshof.com. Of course, follow us on all of our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at VASportsHOF. Uh, I'm Will Driscoll, once again, the Executive Director of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, and I want to thank you for joining us today on the Hall Call podcast or interview series, both of them. <laughs>